I ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians. We're studying some complex words today from the Apostle Paul. Galatians 2. We're going to start at verse 15 in just a minute. So Galatians 2, 15. In this letter to the Galatian church, Paul is angry. One of the ways that readers can tell that he is not happy is because there are no encouraging words. (laughs) To the people who are reading, that's a clue to us, right? Like if you get a letter and there's nothing that says grace to you and peace to you. And I'm so proud of you for the work that you're doing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's none of that. Paul is angry at the church for allowing themselves to be hugely influenced by a group of Jewish Christians called Judaizers. And these people believe that conversion of Christ also needed to include traditions rooted in Judaism. In other words, Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law. It's not just legalism that Paul is fighting here. Really, he's fighting a different gospel altogether than what he himself has signed up with, than what he himself has been preaching. The Judaizers are not opponents of Christianity. They're Christians. They just think it's necessary for all believers to keep what they themselves have been taught for centuries to revere. Everybody should be a Jewish Christian because that would honor God's original revelation to them. But Paul isn't just angry with the church. He's also mad at Peter because Peter doesn't want to be judged by these people that he considers to be brothers. And so he has begun to distance himself from the Gentiles who aren't following the Jewish traditions. Peter used to break bread with Gentiles at the love feasts, but now he's stopped. And as key leaders in the church together, Paul is looking at his compadre and saying, Hey, what are you doing? That's not okay. It's imperative for them to be on the same issue. So in helping the Galatian church understand that they are at a crossroads right now in their history, Paul decides to tell the story of how he came to know Jesus. This is in chapter 1. I would encourage you to go home and read it. And he culminates in how he has confronted Peter in Peter's hypocrisy with not sitting down with the Gentiles because they weren't clean. Right before the, the words that we're going to read, hear what Paul says to Peter. He says, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Ouch. This is a powerful and important piece of writing for the church as we understand what it means to be saved. So let's pick up the story in Galatians 2, 15 through 21. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, he's not calling them sinful, he's saying that's what they call Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words. Help us to understand them, Lord, in their context, but also what they mean for us today. May your spirit, God, speak to us and give us new insight and wisdom altogether. Amen. In the strong rebuke that Paul gives the Galatian church, the words that we study today are actually central to the entire book. The words that we just read are the entire focus for the Galatian letter. And Paul's whole message is, of course, that it is by faith in Jesus Christ that we are justified, that there's no other way, that we put our faith in Messiah, whom he has sent. And as we talk about this passage today, it's important that we understand again and revisit the concept of justification. It's used here for the first time in Galatians. Galatians is a precursor to Romans, where Paul fleshes out these huge concepts again. But it's all over what we just read. Justification is a legal term. And it means that those who trust Christ will be to be saved will be treated as righteous by God. That when he looks at us, when we trust Christ, he no longer sees our sin, but he sees us as righteous. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God. Justification then is the opposite of condemnation. To condemn someone means to declare them guilty. To be justified means that now we are no longer guilty, but more than not guilty, we're holy in the sight of God because of what Jesus did on our behalf. Now, this is an important reality for all of us. And it's important for us to really think about this and thank the Lord for this because our sin separates us from God. And then what do we do with the sin that we have? What do we do with the wrongs that we have done when our very nature is sinful? The greatest need that all of us have is to be made right with God. And when that happens, so many pieces of our life can be put into place. Because in justification, we're forgiven. And we're free from our sin. Our slate is wiped clean. There is no one else who can do this for us except the perfect God. And no one else has ever offered to help us in this way. 
So today I want to talk about three things that we learn from this passage about justification. One, we see in justification, the emphasis is not on what we do, but what God does for us. Secondly, we see that in justification, everyone is equal. And thirdly, we see in justification, we are invited closer to Christ, not further away. So let's start with the first point. In justification, whoa, Martin Luther, there he is. All right. In justification, the emphasis is not on what we do, be it follow the law or any other kind of works, but on what God does for us, which is to die in our place. When you stop to think about it, you realize these are actually mutually exclusive ideas. They cannot both be true at the same time. Either we are saved by faith or we are saved by merit. Paul reminds us elsewhere that the law is important. The law is important because it shows us what what sin is. We need to know the Ten Commandments. We need to know the laws of God. But by themselves, they cannot save us. No one can be justified by knowing what is right or wrong. We have to be justified by Jesus' death. John Stott puts it in a way that I could understand. He said, the Judaizers said Christ plus the law equals good standing before God. And Paul says, Christ plus nothing equals right standing before God. Nothing can be added to what Jesus did for us. But we understand that these are people in process. They had to learn what it meant that their object of faith changed from revelation from Moses to revelation in Christ. The church at this point is mostly made up of Jewish believers, and they're trying to grasp how it is that they're supposed to live. When one has followed the law or the rules every day of their lives in order to know God, it doesn't just stop overnight. Jesus is now their focus. The Holy Spirit has become their guide in revealing God And they're holding on to that way of life is somewhat understandable. And no one was saying they couldn't keep their traditions. You need to know that. They were allowed to keep their traditions. But it was their insistence that everybody else adopt their culture and their practice. That's what made it untenable. I remember learning something about this the first time when I was in college. And I invited a friend to my home church who didn't know God. And I was so excited that she came. And when she got there, I told her all the things that were important. But when I told her those things, it actually caused a deeper division between her and God. You see, this is where we sit. And then we go to the morning and to the evening service. And you need to make sure that you take notes. And you need to make sure that you have a quiet time in the morning. And we have to help put things away when we're done. Now, let's be clear. This isn't something that the church told me that I had to do. And I had to make my friends do when I brought them. It was something I internalized that I thought was necessary for people of faith to do. But what came across to her was that's what she had to do in order to know God. That's what she had to do in order to be saved. Instead of drawing her close to Jesus, I was telling her how to be a member of a suburban white church in a small town in California. Instead of offering her Christ, 
I offered her a bunch of religious practices. So a question for all of us is whether we add something to our faith practice which we think will help save us, that we think will help God to love us more or earn us greater honor in his eyes. Stop and think if there is some behavior that you think is necessary for you to do in order to be righteous in the Lord's eyes. The love of God is greater than our sin. And we do not have to do anything to earn our faith. And then we need to stop and think about if we're putting extra burden on other people, our children, or the next generation of believers. Only one thing is necessary for salvation, faith in Jesus. And that is so freeing. We're the ones that put us in bondage trying to do all the things that we think are necessary. So examine your life and see if there's freedom of Christ. Or do you feel burdened by your salvation and faith practices? Secondly, we see here that in justification, all are equal. The free gift of salvation is offered to all of us, regardless of our culture, our sin, our gender, our religious pedigree, or anything about us. Jesus died for the whole world, and he calls each of us in unique ways to know who he is. We then continue to live our faith journey in the same way, through the love and the grace of the Lord. There are no divisions in the kingdom of God. No one is better than anyone else in his eyes. You see, the actions of the Judaizers made it so that the Jewish Christians were somehow seen to be better. Because not only were they the chosen ones, they were keeping the law and accepting Jesus as Savior. So Paul's words become a philosophical question. Is Christianity going to be a universal movement? Or is it going to be exclusively for those who are willing to keep the Jewish law? This is an important question for all Christians in all places. Because we have to pay attention whether or not we create classes of believers by our attitudes and our behaviors. What differentiates us from our neighbor? What differentiates us from the worst sinner that we know? Our answer should be nothing but the grace of Christ. If we stop and think about it, are there people that we think will be left out of heaven in our lives? Who doesn't the people who don't do all the right things that we think that they need to do in order to be saved, thus making them not quite equal to us. When we make distinctions about those who are better in Christ than others, we're on pretty shaky ground. Later in this letter, here's what Paul says. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. We all come to the cross needing grace. So let's ask the Lord to show us if there is someone in our lives that we think are less than we are. And let us ask for forgiveness and repent of that sin. Lastly, justification invites us closer to Christ, not further away. The Judaizers believed that Paul was preaching a dangerous gospel because it didn't have any basis in the law. They said to him, how are people going to know 
when they go astray if they don't keep the law. There were certain believers who wouldn't stay rooted in God, they thought. It's a slippery slope. Once you do away with the law, you just believe in Christ. That's it. That's all you have to do. No way. Paul tells the church that if those who trust Christ still sin, does that mean that Christ is promoting sin? And Paul says, no way. Dr. Robert Gundry, professor emeritus at Westmont, says this in his commentary on Galatians. Living by faith in God's son is outside the law's jurisdiction. And therefore, in trusting Christ, it is impossible to transgress the law. It is not a sin to be justified by faith alone. In addition, Paul reminds us, we die to ourselves. We are raised to new life in Christ. In one of the most beautiful statements in the whole New Testament, a life verse to many, Paul says this in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are made righteous the minute we unite ourselves with Christ through faith. This is not an intellectual activity. It is a life-changing decision which changes everything about us. Our old life is gone. We are a new creation. Our sin nature is crucified with Christ. What a beautiful picture. At Easter, when you come to the Tenebrae service, or at Easter, when you are having your disciplines during Lent, do you picture your sins crucified with Christ? Do you picture that they are there, and then on Resurrection Day, they are gone? You are a new person. You are not the same. I think in this passage, there's a fair amount of fear going on. The Judaizers are afraid that justification in Christ alone will be a watered-down life that's going to result in sin. Peter is afraid of not being seen as honoring the God of his culture. Paul is even afraid that the church isn't going to go on if it's not generalized to everyone. In our fear, sometimes we can hold on to what we think is necessary for salvation when the truth is that God has given us exactly what we need. The only thing that the Lord asks is that you and I put our faith in him and accept his justification on our behalf. And I think that this passage shows us that we have to check ourselves, that we're not adding anything into salvation, that we're not putting a burden on other people, that we really truly are inviting them to know Christ and not just the church. Paul's warnings to us resound in my head that we have to make sure that there are no dividing lines in denominations, in the church, in any way, in believers. We have to ascertain that we are clearly communicating how to get right with God so that people can know that there's real life, so that people can know that there's freedom, not bondage. Paul's last words serve as a reminder to all of us what is at the core of the gospel. He says, if righteousness can be gained from the law, if we can be righteous by doing all the right things, by doing what is morally correct, then Christ didn't need to die. Anytime we rely on our good acts, 
the death of Christ becomes irrelevant, period. Anytime we try to find salvation besides the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, we are acting as if his death on our behalf was not needed or relevant. So we end by a quote from Martin Luther, who was one of the first people to understand and really let us know what justification was about. He says, With Paul, we absolutely deny the possibility of our self-merit. God never yet gave to any person grace and everlasting life as a reward for merit. Let us pray.